You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Um, We've been uh, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine since it began or um, last year and have been concerned about um, the war crimes and crimes against humanity that have been coming out and really looking at the amazing work being done by OSINT researchers and journalists to use open source intelligence methods to detect and verify um, atrocity crimes that are taking place there. And um, But what's also interesting, and, and I'll lean over to Liam, who's our journalism professor at Concordia and also a fellow at our institute, is that similar to other um, recent cases, I'm thinking of the Rohingya in Myanmar, where we've seen um, social media companies try to delete um, extremism or anything was seen as incitement to violence sometimes does uh, take down um, uh, evidence of human rights uh, abuses that are to be used for prosecution. So this is an ongoing issue that that started uh, before uh, the Ukraine war, but but I think is warrant of a very important discussion. And with that, I would now uh, ask uh, Liam to um, to take the floor to introduce our speakers and then Uh, take the discussion forward. Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, My name is Liam Maloney. I'm a professor of journalism at Concordia School of Journalism here in Montreal and uh, also a fellow, the John Lemieux Fellow uh, at MIGS. Uh, I'm currently working on setting up an open source investigations group here in Montreal uh, that can help graduate students connect with some of the more pressing human rights matters um, globally and hopefully collect and gather evidence that can help prosecute people who are committing these crimes against humanity. Um, My interest in this subject goes back to the beginnings of the conflict in Syria. Um, As far back as 2012, when I started looking at videos that were uploaded by human rights activists and eyewitnesses on the ground who were documenting uh, attacks on civilian infrastructure including hospitals and so on, and then uploading those videos to spaces like YouTube and other social media assets. Um, And what I noticed even back then was that content moderators were pulling this this material uh, either because the subject matter was too gruesome or because it depicted uh, scenes that they thought might be disturbing to viewers or because it violated in some general way the terms of their, uh, of their the, the terms of service. Um, and this made it extremely difficult to preserve or refer back to material that had been uploaded. A lot of people working in the field would document a violation, upload it quickly, um, often in a very sort of scrambled or low res format, and then delete that content from their phones so that if they were apprehended by security services, um, they, there wouldn't be any evidence that they had done something that could get them in more trouble. Uh, and what that meant is often the salient record of these human rights abuses was being stored on the servers of tech companies and then deleted without any kind of conversation about how to preserve it. Um, Belkis uh, from Human Rights Watch prepared a report in 2020 uh, with their colleagues that that speaks a little bit to this. Um, 
well, a lot to it is that, in fact, called Video Unavailable, Social Media Platforms Remove Evidence of War Crimes. And uh, Buckus, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what you learned um, as you prepared this report and what you think it means now, um, now that social media companies are using technology like AI to do content moderation without any sort of human interference. Uh, thanks so much, Liam, uh, for, for, for that introduction and for, for bringing us all together for this uh, discussion today. Um, you know, what I think I, I learned through the process of, of, of the research was, uh, on the one hand, I quickly discovered that many uh, organizations, individuals, had actually been working on this topic for a very long time. Uh, colleagues like Alexa and others who had been um, realizing uh, it, early on the impact of content takedowns on the investigation of um, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and, um, and, and, and realized that there was this community that had been engaging with the companies for years trying to come up with, with some kind of solution. Um, so, that was, so that was enlightening to see that this was an ongoing discussion. Um, the other thing that I that I realized is, you know, how important uh, videos and photos had become, and, and and posts on social media had become in um, in the in, in court proceedings uh, in different parts of, of of mainly Europe, where people were getting convicted uh, for. Um, their their role in specific abuses, uh, where the some sometimes the key piece of evidence would be uh, something that had been posted on online. Um, you know, with this report, we tried to come up with uh, some kind of proposed solution as to how this issue should be addressed. Uh, what we proposed in the report, which is sort of one of 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 various ways forward, would be that some kind of international um, entity, independent entity could be created that would become a repository for taking down content that could, you know, potentially represent important evidence of, of abuses and, and, and that that repository um, would receive taken down content from the companies and then, and then that body would grant access to investigators um, in order for them to carry out their investigations. So, in other words, uh, um, a, a, some way to make content moderation a collaborative process with, with a single entity. Because, of course, right now we have groups like um, the Syrian Archive, who I believe are based in Berlin, um, and, and a new group uh, that's been collecting um, data from the war in Ukraine called Detalion. Um, but they're, they're operating independently and and they don't seem to have any real structured relationship with companies like Meta or YouTube. Um, what what's the reception been from from tech companies to this to this proposition? You know, I think the tech companies are quite concerned. Um, on the one hand, about uh, people's right to privacy, and and a concern that if one were to take content that they have removed from their platforms and sort of maintain it in perpetuity in some 
third party entity that that could cause real concerns with regards to, to people's right to privacy, um, which which I think is, is a legitimate concern and something we really need to think through very carefully. Um, but uh, but they also, I would say, have have not been the most keen on 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 creating a body which could potentially become, you know, what one might call a honey trap, right? So a body that, you know, would have extensive amounts of very important information, potentially, that could be um, hacked, uh, or, you know, leaked, or, or where governments would, would try to get access to the data inside of it. So I, I think they've been quite wary uh, of, of the proposal. It does seem like, um, you know, justified concerns. I, I guess, Alexis, maybe uh, I'd, I'd like to hear from, from you as well on this on this issue. What responsibility do social media platforms have to safeguard this content? You know, I think the challenge with working with private companies has always been that some of the human rights safeguards that we have to protect against government overreach are not directly applicable. But we do have the UN guiding principles on business and human rights that assert that there are obligations on the part of business to think through the impact that, that they're having on different communities. I think the, um, the challenge that we're facing today is that there are so many conflicts around the world and we do need to come together if we're going to meet some of the needs that victims and survivors are saying that they have. One of the, you know, adding to what Belkis has said, and I agree with everything that she said, I know she and I've worked together now for years on some of these issues. There's also a couple of other concerns that we have with preserving this content. One is, of course, um, the graphic nature of the content, which really suggests that perhaps some of this information shouldn't stay up in public spaces online, uh, much like the privacy implications that Welk already mentioned. But then if you talk about creating a centralized repository, in addition to some of the security and other threats that that raises by centralizing these huge repositories of data, you also get the governance structure issue. And that's something Belkis and I and others are working on right now of who gets to decide what happens with that content, who has access for what purposes, it's a really tricky challenge. We also put out a report around the same time as Belkis's um, called Digital Lockers. And one of the things that we were looking at was what models already exist that could be adopted or adapted for this idea of some kind of centralized repository. I think the exciting thing is that we do have ex incredible experimentation in the space that's been quite thoughtful. So for example, the work of Mnemonic, Syrian Archive, they've been around for quite some time. I think there's something to be said for a specialized archive that is very close to the communities that are most impacted, but also something to be said for centralizing this data. One of the challenges that we had in working with the International Criminal Court on getting digital evidence to them early on was how do they signal what they need without giving away too much information about their investigation? And there are new mechanisms for Syria and Myanmar that have been set up that are functioning right now as more centralized repositories. I think we have a lot to think about in terms of creating something that's conflict agnostic so it can have a broader reach. Oh, so well said. Um, and I, I can understand what the challenges are. I wonder too, if, if you did have a central repository, um, who then would be tasked with, with viewing this material? And, you know, what are some of the, what are some, some of the, the issues with, you know, spending a lot of time with this kind of material sitting with it? Uh, I know that uh, OSINT researchers have specific ways that they try and mitigate the, the trauma from, from viewing these, 
this this kind of material. Um, how would that work? We know that content moderators, we, we've seen documentaries about content moderation where people are exposed to, you know, brutal images or videos uh, and it, it seriously impacts their mental health. Does AI perhaps offer a way to collect a lot of materials so that it can be parsed by individuals at a later date? Or is this the wrong way forward? You know, I think the only way forward, given the volume of digital content we have today, is to think through smart human-machine partnerships. I don't think human mm -hmm. beings can do scale on its own, at least not responsibly. One of the challenges, my colleague Andre Lampros and I created a university-based open source investigations lab back in 2016. And of course, one of the first things that we had to confront was the challenges psychologically of dealing with this kind of quantity of digital graphic content. One of the things more traditional war crimes investigators had been saying is, oh, this is such a great model because you're not being put in danger like you would if you were boots on the ground in a conflict area. And while, of course, on one hand, that's true. On the other hand, I think that kind of a statement really under um, recognizes the fact that we just have never before had to grapple with this level, at least not since the past decade of graphic material. And we don't really understand how that's gonna impact people. People said the same thing about drone operators back in 2010, 2011, 2012. And what they found was that yes, while the physical risks were less, the psychological ones were more extreme. So Andre and I've just, we actually have a book coming out next month on the psychosocial side of dealing with these large quantities of war-related footage and other graphic imagery that's online. And we talked to teenagers, we talked to content moderators, we talked to human rights researchers. I do think there is a growing understanding of some of the best you know, practices that you can put in place from having both individual strategies that you can use, which many people, of course, now know, like turning your screen to grayscale yeah. or turning down the audio. But then there are also the cultural changes that need to happen of making this stuff more acceptable to talk about and really ensuring that the culture within organizations supports people getting the support and the help that they need down to the more structural stuff of how do we actually process this data, tag it and code it so that people are aware before they jump in that they're about to see something horrific and can put the proper protections in place. Yeah, that, those, the, I mean, those strategies uh, work to a certain extent. And I, I wonder, maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about this. Um, you know, five, six, seven years ago, one of the biggest threats to this kind of material was, you know, coordinated attacks by malicious state actors um, requesting that services like YouTube take down videos because they presented things they they were they were wrong or it was disinformation or propaganda and so on and so forth and in many cases uh tech companies were happy to remove the material and avoid uh, a fight and i think that things are changing now but is that still is that still a problem is there is there still it's it feels to me like tech companies would rather not deal with this than come up with, with a viable solution. You know, I don't know if it's so much an issue of what they want as some of the challenges facing this process that I do think we need a lot of minds really tackling. 
part of it, of course, is this web of laws to which they're subject. If you think mm -hmm. about the incentives in the space, it's far less likely to incur liability if you, you kind of respond to these and are protective of the data. I think one thing that's really important to remember, though, is it's not a, just a binary that we have in terms of options like leave up or take down. There are, of course, other um, there's everything on a spectrum of you can deprioritize this content so that investigators who have the URL or are otherwise able to access this information can find it. But maybe it's not circulating where people are going to stumble upon this sort of in their everyday feed. I think there are also examples that we've seen, like the GFCT that were set up that were kind of hashes of videos or imagery um, that different organizations could at least know what was circulating. I think what we're asking for in the war crimes investigation space is more than hashes. We really need the content itself. But I do think there's ways to set up smarter pathways for taking that information down from public viewing, but also thinking through the preservation piece. Now, I think what we've got to do is be as specific as possible because, of course, human right you know, the human rights interests in this stuff sometimes point in very opposite directions with what to do with it. As Belk has already mentioned, privacy would suggest you maybe take things down and don't hand them out. Access to information and freedom of expression, which are equal values in human rights, um, would suggest that you leave it up and you make this accessible. You also have the interests of those who've been most impacted, and those can sometimes conflict as well. So it's not an easy solution, but I appreciate when they are willing to come to the table and begin to talk that through. I do think we're going to need to see some pathway in place soon, just given the value of this information right now to the investigation and accountability space. Thank you, uh, Alexis. I, you know, maybe now is a good time for the benefit of some of people who are tuning in um, who may not be uh, as aware of, of what the value of this information can be for different types of researchers. Um, Focus. why is it important to have complete documents up online, accessible um, as part of the open source space? I mean, just to say, I, you know, I think um, what we're talking about in many cases is not necessarily for the content to remain online, some content really shouldn't be online. It, 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 it shouldn't be um, staying up on platforms. The, mm. the real question is for that content that, 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 that really shouldn't be, you know, sort of for, for public consumption, how can we make it available to investigators? That's, that's really sort of the question for us. Um, which is slightly different to this other question of what what content should stay online and what should go offline. Um, the, 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 what, what we've seen in, in the last you know, five, 10 years is that photos and videos and other posts on social media uh, have uh, captured crucial evidence of abuses around the world in conflicts um, spanning the globe. And it's become more and more important for our investigations as Human Rights Watch, but, but also court, court uh, proceedings to, to rely on this kind of content in order for people to be held accountable for the most serious abuses that you see in the context of armed conflict. And so uh, it really is absolutely essential that we figure out how to make sure this content that is so important for accountability and so important for documenting abuses is available to investigators. And again, that might mean that it stays online 
or it might mean that while it shouldn't stay online and should come offline, it, it should be available to those investigators. And I guess the challenge is maintaining a degree of transparency to uh, you know, the public in a, in a climate that's increasingly wary of, of disinformation uh, so, that, so that investigators can do their work, but the public can rest assured that material is being, being used correctly and is in the right hands. Absolutely. Like. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one one discussion that that Alexa and, and I and, and many other colleagues have had over the years is, you know, were some kind of centralized repository to be created, then you, you start to really have to think through uh, who would have access to it. Um, as you say, that goes sort of to the transparency point as well. Uh, what one would have to ensure that um, that those who are doing sort of serious investigations do have access, but one would hope that the system would be one that would ensure that, you know, uh, local organizations as well as international organizations uh, and, and, and whoever it is that really needs this content gets access to it without a system that's, that's biased um, in terms of who, who's granted access and who can carry out these investigations. And I think it would, you know, it, it will be very tricky to ensure that whatever is created, if, it, if, if something is created, really is, is transparent uh, uh, in terms of, of who can get access to it and, and use this content and analyze this content. I mean, it, it... Maybe, sorry, off of Belkis for just one second, one of the challenges that we had even four and five years ago is that there are so many different, really pro-social potential uses of this kind of content. But one of the things I think we've really had to parse out is almost separating those communities. For example, um, researchers, of course, want a lot of the data from social media companies, but what they need can be anonymized because they're looking at patterns and trends that are not dependent on necessarily individual people. But then you get into the issue of war crimes investigations where what you need is actually the people behind these things and highly personalized data. And then there's kind of a third group that I think has been very vocal in the space and with good reason, and that's the communities that are most affected by conflict, who want sort of these um, archives for transitional justice, for historical memory related purposes, and that's yet a third bucket of data. So I think one of the things that we're always having to think through as we're having these conversations is, are these three different kinds of repositories? Is there some way that a repository can do this work? Um, and what does that mean in terms of the specific asks of the companies themselves and what we're asking them to provide? And then as Belkis put um, so perfectly on the other side, who do we give the access to? Who's considered an investigator? Is it researchers or is it people with a legal mandate to do a legal investigation where the data might end up in a court of law? Um, or is it governments? And I think that, and or is that governments? And I think those are really, really difficult things to map out. Where do where do journalists fit into all of this? Um, because right now, you know, it's it's relatively easy to come across this kind of material, although you have to act quickly and find a way to archive it. Uh, and then it can be used in the context of a broader investigation. You can use those videos to geolocate scenes and, and chronolocate scenes and confirm that uh, something that somebody said happened in a certain place actually did indeed happen there. Um, and then you can verify faces against names. Um, if all of this content ends up in uh, an international independent entity, 
that is the gatekeeper of that content, where does that leave uh, reporters, especially um, freelance reporters who may not be affiliated with specific news organizations? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that from a justice and accountability perspective or a human rights perspective, you can kind of think about it, and this is one way a lot of us have been talking about it, as links in a chain that go from the person who's capturing the data in the first place in that conflict zone all the way to when it ends up in a court of law or in a, a story. And I think those two different outputs become really critical. If you think about international criminal justice, you don't get an international tribunal or a major international case if, um, if, unless there's really a political will to drive those cases forward and to create fora in which they can be heard. So I think the journalists are so important in this and that they are often the first people who are really bringing to global attention what's happening in communities. And they have a freedom to do that fairly quickly relative to legal investigators. Legal investigators may not have a mandate to investigate sometimes for a couple of years, if not a decade after an actual atrocity has occurred. And it's so important that journalists are the ones documenting and getting this information out for both the political will reason and also kind of making sure that we continue to have this data in the public record. I do think that as we're talking about the creation of an international repository, that is probably secondary in terms of the conversations that we're having, because I do think there's sort of a working assumption that journalists are um, getting to the data before a lot of the other groups that are really interested in the information. But of course, as we know, that data is going to continue to be relevant for years afterward. And, um, you know, I think the transparency piece, we really do reply, we really do rely on investigative reporters and other journalists to help us understand not only what's happening now, but the historical you know, narrative behind it. I do think that's just another question we're going to have to have around um, who has access Right now, we're focused on, uh, or at least I've been, we've been focused at the Human Rights Center on the legal accountability piece, because we almost have to take a tiny bite to see if we can get this to work first. But then I do think as we begin to see the seeds of this um, bloom, we can hopefully be talking about other communities who can get access and under what condition. Thank you for that. That's such a, such a great summary of, of some of the issues that we have to face. Um, I, I thought maybe we would we would close by by going back to to the source of this material. Um, often we're talking about uh, human rights activists or eyewitnesses who feel the need to speak out uh, and very courageously upload this material, uh, and they're looking to upload it to platforms that will get the most number of eyes because they're recognizing an injustice and they're hopeful that you know, as many people as possible will see this and speak out and perhaps do something to affect policy change, at least in the short term. Um, how do we protect those voices um, in, in, in the context of preserving this material? And is there a responsibility, um, you know, not just among, in, in, not just in the journalism community, but in the human rights community to make sure that that we don't expose people who are uploading this material to um, greater threat. I do think we have that responsibility. Um, I think there's a tension between being overly paternalistic and also 
protective because I do think that when you are in a moment of crisis and you're trying to get out to the world information about what you've just witnessed or experienced, um, you may not have the space and the luxury to be thinking through all the ways that information can boomerang on you or how you might be giving clues that make you or people you care about deeply um, more vulnerable, whether they're your family or your community. And so I do think that from the investigation's perspective, it's really incumbent on the researcher or investigator to be helping that person if they end up in direct conversation with them, thinking through not only the risks of using that data in the moment, but also the risks of using that data over time. And I would say that's also true since you're talking about, you know, having students and others that are doing this kind of work. I think it's true of the investigator as well. One of the biggest challenges we've had in running these teams is that you may have a graduate student or an undergraduate student who's working on an investigation and they or their family may be from a country that's been impacted. If their name goes out on a report, for example, are, are, is it going to be that they can never go back to their home country or vote, go visit their family members again? Um, what are the risks that are raising? Maybe the politics are relatively stable now. Maybe they won't be five years from now. So I think both on the side of the survivor and on the side of the investigator, really understanding how powerful this data is. And, you know, of course, there's that phenomenon known as the mosaic effect. And I think those of us who do open source investigations have long known this because we benefit from it. But how even when you think you've anonymized something, how little clues within that data can be triangulated with other sources that exist out there in the world that you may not even know are floating around online and you can quickly reveal somebody's identity or location. We struggled with that a lot when we first put out reports where of course we wanted to show off that we were able to geolocate where someone had been standing when they captured footage of an atrocity in part to add to the legitimacy and transparency around that investigation, but also had to really recognize that we shouldn't release that data in those geo coordinates because in some ways we may be putting a giant spotlight or a giant target on the person who had taken the risks to shoot that footage in the first place. So I really do think it's something that's very context specific and really needs to be conversations that are being had all the time between investigators, their teams, and also of course those most affected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these, these breadcrumb trails that we depend on to put together evidence, um, you know, will also inevitably uh, imperil the people who are exposing these events in the first place it's it's such a challenge it's such a challenge and, and i appreciate you bringing that up um maybe you know we've we've been at this for for 35 minutes now maybe it's a good time to have some closing remarks and uh perhaps invite people to ask questions um did is there anything that that we missed that you feel would be important to to discuss perhaps especially in the context of the war in Ukraine, which is maybe the most videoed conflict in human history. Maybe I'll make one or uh, two last points um, before questions and before Balkis closes. Uh, I think, first of all, the diversity of platforms that are being used to document atrocities and events in Ukraine um, has really raised interesting challenges for the open source investigations community. No one is capable of mastering all the tools and all the platforms that are out there for doing these investigations. 
So I think thinking about how to be as flexible as possible and how to partner and collaborate with others becomes really critical to make sure that we are getting a rounded perspective of the voices and the interests that are out there and that we're not cherry picking or inadvertently overlooking interests in communities who may be just not speaking or communicating on platforms where we are. I also think I kind of skipped over um, one of your questions around AI and the social, the kind of graphic nature of this content and the psychosocial effect of it. I do think we can be making a lot more use of artificial intelligence for both becoming more effective and efficient and finding the information we're really looking for, but also protecting people. So one thing I would love to see from the companies is a little more control put in the hands of social media users in terms of what they're exposed to and what they're exposing other people to. For example, one thing we've been discussing between Belkis and me and some of the others with whom we've been working is, can you add some kind of consent button? Like you want this information you're posting to go to the hands of war crimes investigators or journalists, you know, so that if it is taken down, it's actually getting in some ways challenged or channeled to the, the hands of the people who you are most trying to reach. Now, private companies shouldn't necessarily have to be in the service of um, purposes that they were not designed for. And I would hate to suggest that too strongly, but I do think there are ways to get around some of the privacy and consent challenges by putting more control in the hands of the users. I think auto blurring too of graphic content if it's able to be detected and being able to turn that off if you're an investigator and you want to look at that content or need to look at that content. I think that way we're protecting people from the outset via machine and then we're returning the control to the individual in terms of what it's supposed to, how and when. And, and that's something that's relatively easy to um, activate. I, I, I think that you know we already have that technology available now. Uh, and it's it's progressively more and more refined, um, you know, from one day to the next. Exactly. Uh, and it and it and it works. Yep. Um, and why not use it? I mean, I think it is a pro-social use of artificial intelligence and machine learning that could have a huge positive impact in a very short period of time. Thank you, Alexis. I, th I think those are terrific points, and and kind of a great way to round out some of the uh, some of the previous points you've made. Uh, Belkis, did you have any any closing words? Uh, anything that you felt we we didn't go over that was yeah? I mean, one one thing we haven't um, really discussed uh, has been the link with AI in terms of the speed of of takedowns. I mean, the conversations that we've been having until now all kind of are premised on the idea that content gets posted online. Um, we know that content exists investigators are looking for that content and then we're trying to figure out how we ensure that that content is made available to those investigators uh, because they know that it exists. I think one reality we need to grapple with is the fact that nowadays when it comes to most platforms and, and this is really based on the information that they're making public around their takedown practices, the vast majority of content is actually coming down before it ever gets seen by anyone. Um, be, because um, because of, of 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 algorithms that are that are recognizing uh, what you know may constitute graphic violence, for example, and so immediately at the moment of posting the content, it's being taken down or it's it's not allowed to be uploaded. And I think um, that that's a much trickier area uh, and one where we don't yet have any good solutions as to how one might be able to start thinking about 
you know, getting access to that content that, you know, the, the content that we don't know exists. Um, and, and so I think we also, you know, hope, hopefully will um, be able to start doing some thinking on that with, with the companies, because that could represent, you know, an even greater trove of, of, of potential evidence. And evidently, what's what's important is having this conversation with the companies with the companies in the first place. Um, you know, there was an article just published ten days ago or eleven days ago by uh, the BBC, an article by Jack Goodman and Maria Kareniuk that uh, tested. They they uploaded uh, video that that contained graphic content, um, and it was taken down within a minute. Um, that's that's an extraordinarily short amount of time for a video to be hosted and then and then pulled. In your in your research from uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago, um, some content that had been pulled was still available on their servers uh, up to two years after it had been pulled. Is there any clarity on what determines whether something stays and sits on the servers or is pulled and deleted? How does that? I think that's a really um, tricky question to answer. You know, publicly, the companies will say, you know, that that, that once content is taken down, it may remain on their servers for up to 90 days. Um, And and, and that's all they've been willing to say publicly. Um, as, As you said, in our research, we saw that there was some content that had been maintained on their servers for much longer, but we have very little understanding of the uh, the when and why the companies might decide to retain content for longer periods of time. So, so I think that's really um, again, we you know we keep returning to this issue of transparency, but that really is a is, is a black box, and so it's hard to know. You know, one would imagine. For example, since you asked the question about Ukraine and the context of Ukraine and all of this, one would imagine that the companies are well aware that there is so much content being posted on Ukraine, you know, a context where we know there are, you know, hundreds of of war crimes being committed every 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 week, every month. And and, and so one would imagine that the companies are very uh, cognizant that they would need to retain uh, important content that's being posted, you know, for for longer periods of time. But we have absolutely no guarantee that they're that they're doing that. And again, it's not something that they're willing to be to be public on. I think the other thing too is context and context and relationships. So the other thing they've often talked about is how you know the context around a post gives a lot of information about the intents and purposes for which it's been posted in the first place whether it has legitimate news and social value etc cetera, etc cetera. but of course the ability to assess that context is imperfect and i think particularly in non-english speaking countries and and situations um you know the the quote unquote error rate of how you interpret that information may increase because you may not have the same number and um, breadth of people, I think that's a legitimate criticism of the companies is needing to have the, the cultural and linguistic ability to make those cultural determinations if context is going to be a piece of it. I think the other thing we've been calling for on the human rights side is, of course, 
I'm very grateful for the relationships and that open lines of communication to see if we can collectively work to make the situation better and get more hands in, you know, or more information in the hands of people who can get greater accountability. But at the same time, I think we really need to be thinking through um, how do we create channels that a broader array of people can reach out to in order to make sure that this information doesn't get siloed around the interests of a small handful of human rights activists and advocates, but that we actually do have a system that can kind of function on its own in the ways that as a global community, um, many of us would hope it would. This, this obviously presents a sort of a clear and present challenge, um, both for tech companies and for human rights observers. Um, but one, one that I think needs to be urgently addressed. Uh, what is maybe final question? What is, what is, what is the best way to help establish these relationships or nurture a more open dialogue about, uh, this issue and solutions around it? I mean, what I do appreciate is certainly at the Human Rights Center here at Berkeley, we've been talking directly with the social media companies since about 2013 on these issues. And um, I appreciate that they keep coming to the table when they do come to the table and those that do come to the table. I think we need to speed this up a little bit, but not by sacrificing the thoughtfulness and the care that's going to need to go into the design of whatever comes next. And I do think since about 2014, 2015, a big part of this has been talking through the potential for an international repository um, we do need a lot of smart thinking. And I think this is where the academic community, the scientific community, the tech communities have a lot to offer in terms of what is possible and what may be the risks of different design models that, um, you know, those who are actually in that conversation may not fully appreciate or understand. I also think we need a lot more translate translators between the tech community and the human rights community and um, communities who are impacted by violence so that we really understand what is technologically possible and the recommendations that the human rights community is putting forward are informed by those realistic um, possibilities. Because I think it's really easy to say, oh, no, 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 that's not technologically possible or we can do X and overpromise and underdeliver. And both are, are potentially dangerous when the stakes are this high and people's lives are at stake. Thank you for that, Alexis. I mean, I think your expertise and, and Belkis's expertise in this issue is really unparalleled. And um, it's it's been really, really terrific having you both elucidate some of the issues around this, this, this problem that we face. Thank you for sharing your expertise. I know you're both at RightsCon, so you're probably tired after traveling over the weekend. But we really appreciate you joining us. Um, we're looking to increase our work, so we look forward to staying in touch. And, um, and we're inspired by the work that you're, you're both doing. Thank you. Thank you.